Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event details on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. You called it psychological warfare. It, it, it felt like corporate terrorism because we were terrorized. And it was very calculated. It was very vicious. Why would senior management at eBay, the popular Silicon Valley e-commerce giant, want to, quote, terrorize a couple from a tiny town in Massachusetts who ran a website out of their home? That's our story tonight. Through a vast stretch of open and, for the moment, empty grassland, Allison Fox is taking us up a muddy two-track path in search of buffalo. Fox is the CEO of American Prairie, which has, as just one of many audacious goals, the restoration of bison to a landscape they once ruled. Oh, there. Oh, there they are. There. Look at them. Wow, there oh, they are. Oh, look at the babies. In the darkest times and in the most dangerous places, James Nockway captures beauty and brutality, moments of hate and heroism, senseless destruction, and quiet acts of compassion. Mothers and fathers are my heroes, what they do for their children, how they protect them. Being in places where people have next to nothing, and yet anything they have they offer to a stranger. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Cecilia Vega. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? 
like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The online auction site eBay launched the e-commerce revolution when it was founded more than 20 years ago. Over the decades, it's drawn in 134 million users from mom and pop collectors on the hunt for bargains to small business owners. In 2022, users sold almost $74 billion worth of goods through eBay. But last winter, buried in an otherwise dull annual financial disclosure, a note on page 105 hinted at a scandal inside the Silicon Valley giant. It refers to an inquiry from the U.S. attorney about the stalking and harassment of the editor and publisher of an online newsletter at the hands of eBay employees. In March, we introduced you to the couple that was the target of that stocking. They loved eBay so much, they started a publication to help people who sell stuff on the auction site and then found themselves the focus of a terror campaign. We met Ina and David Steiner in Natick, Massachusetts, a quaint Boston suburb where the couple had enjoyed a quiet life until the summer of 2019. You called it psychological warfare. It it, it felt like corporate terrorism because we were terrorized, and it was very calculated. It was very vicious. One of the things that we also learned was what sadistic pleasure these people took in terrorizing us. The Steiners have been married for more than 30 years and worked together from their home for more than 20. They publish a news website called E-Commerce Bytes. David handles the business side of things and Ina does the reporting. What do you cover? Who's the audience? We cover industry news. So what I do is I I follow what's happening and how it impacts sellers. People would write to us and they would say, hey, I'm having a problem with Amazon or I'm having a problem with eBay. So we said, well, let's put up a section where, where we can just be a conduit. That's all we ever wanted to be, a conduit for sellers to tell their problems, tell their issues. Uh, share information. And give them a voice. And give them a voice. Most of their 600,000 readers are sellers on eBay, Amazon, and Etsy. But the signers say e-commerce executives also read Ina's articles closely. Industry observers would contact us with questions as there were certain things going on. And Wall Street was very interested because these were public companies and they needed to know. Tell me what happened when you 
opened your email on the morning of August 8th? Well, we were getting bombarded um, with, with signups to crazy newsletters. Newsletters the Steiners never signed up for. Sin City Fetish Night, The Satanic Temple, The Communist Party, and dozens of others. Then somebody started harassing us on Twitter through direct messages. What were you seeing on Twitter? Um, Threats. It, it was basically shut up or else. And it was, it was as blatant as that. But much more threatening than that, and so vulgar, we can't show you many of the messages. Three days later, the Steiners got a strange call. Somebody left a voicemail for us saying they couldn't fulfill the order for a wet specimen. And David was the one who called, and he said, what is a wet specimen? And, and it was a pig fetus. That's when I really, my heart sank, because I thought, who might be angry at something I wrote? And I couldn't figure it out. I mean, we were, we were desperately trying to think, who could it be? Is that when you called the police? Every step along the way, but we, that was the first we, we would uh, report it. And when the police drove up to the front door, we had to put on, you know, a rational face. We couldn't show how terrified we were. After the police officer took the report, he, he stepped outside and said, there's a package here. So he waited. And when I opened up the package, it looked like, it looked like flesh and hair. And um, I kind of yelled or shrieked. It was a pig mask from the horror movie Saw. The plot involves a psychopath who tortures his victims. The last thing they see is the mask. I imagine as this is happening, you're not only thinking, who is this person, but what are they going to do next? Oh, th that, was the, that was the question. What, what are they going to do next? Over the next week, someone sent boxes of live cockroaches and spiders to the Steiners. Pornography was sent to their neighbors, but addressed to David. On social media, the Steiners' home was listed as the site of yard sales and sex parties. And then this book, about surviving the loss of a spouse, addressed to David, arrived at the Steiner's doorstep. It was a death threat. And to be followed up a few short days later with a funeral wreath, an expensive funeral wreath, it, it only confirmed that these people were going to hurt or kill Ina. You were afraid for her life. I, I was terrified I was going to lose her. Police at first thought it might be a small town prank, David installed more security cameras at their home. But for three weeks, the threats and packages kept coming. As this is going on, what's it like to be inside your house? When it would get dark out at night, that's when I would really be terrified. You Just, guys started sleeping in separate rooms at one point? What we, what we wanted to do was to make sure that if someone did break in, that at least one of us could either call the police or escape the Steiners were afraid inside their house and afraid to leave it. After David noticed a van and later a car following him, he was terrified, but managed to get a photo of the license plate. That broke open the case. I'm a guy who likes to dig up things. I sometimes don't get the end result, and that's why I rely on smart guys like this. Natick Detective John Haswell was working the case with Sergeant Jason Sutherland. He ran the license plate of the car that had been following David. And it came back to a rental agency. And I contacted the rental agency and uh, got the name of the renter, Veronica Zay. I didn't know anything about the Steiners at this point other than what was going on with them. So I, this was the first time that I called them. I said, uh, are you familiar with the name? And they weren't. 
And while I was saying that, I think um, Mrs. Steiner did a, a, her own little search and said, <clears throat> oh my God, uh, she works for eBay. I, I don't know. I can't, ex I can't describe how flabbergasted we were. eBay? I, I, I mean, what was an eBay employee doing in a rental van following David? Did she um, it blew her send all these things? Was it eBay that did this to us? I mean, it was inconceivable. Sergeant Sutherland tracked Veronica Zay's rental car to the Boston Ritz-Carlton and called her from the lobby. And I fully expected her to come down and say, hand me a business card and say, I'm, I'm from eBay and uh, we're doing an investigation and yeah, I drove by the house. Um, we called up to the room and she said uh, she'd be down after she had a conference call. She never showed up. Zay left town without talking to police, but Detective Haswell had been chasing down another lead. He learned the funeral wreath sent to the Steiners was bought with a gift card from a grocery store in Silicon Valley, not far from eBay headquarters. Yeah, they're less than eight miles away, and he was able to get photographs of uh, them purchasing the, the gift cards, and it was Veronica Zay again. The FBI took over. Ten months later, the U.S. attorney in Massachusetts, Andrew Lelling, announced the indictments of six employees and contractors from eBay. The complaint alleges that the victims were targeted because eBay executives were unhappy with the coverage of eBay on the couple's website. It didn't take us an hour to realize the ramifications of a public company trying to destroy a journalist. They were attacking the First Amendment, freedom of the press. They wanted to destroy Ina and our publication. Former federal prosecutor Andrew Lelling says the plan to target the Steiners was hatched at eBay. What was unique about this case is that you had relatively senior management at a Fortune 500 company uh, who thought it was a good idea to launch what can only be described as a campaign of terror targeting a middle-aged couple in Natick. Why? Well, the why is actually harder than it seems. Investigators learned in April of 2019, eBay's then-CEO, Devin Wenig, shared a link to this post Dinah had written about his annual pay. eBay's chief communications officer, Steve Weimer, wrote back, we're going to crush this lady. About a month later, Wenig, the CEO of eBay, texted, take her down. Prosecutors say Steve Weimer later texted eBay security director Jim Baugh, I want to see ashes, as long as it takes, whatever it takes. Just a few days later, investigators say Baugh set up a meeting with his security staff at eBay's California headquarters, posted a map of Natick on the wall, and then dispatched a team to Boston. Seven people who worked for eBay's safety and security unit, including two former cops and a former nanny, all pled guilty to stalking or cyber-stalking charges. Senior Security Director Jim Baugh was sentenced to five years in prison. Veronica Zay was sentenced to a year of home confinement and probation. But to date, eBay has not been charged with any crimes. The company said in a statement to 60 Minutes, the conduct of the former employees was wrong and it has cooperated fully with the government investigation. The plan was hatched in eBay's headquarters in a conference room. It was paid for ultimately by eBay. Don't they bear any responsibility for this? They may, but... Uh, cases are common where an employee inside a company uses company resources to do wrong. 
In every one of those cases, it's not necessarily true that the company itself is responsible. And Lulling says there was not enough evidence to file criminal charges against eBay's top executives, Devin Wenig or Steve Weimer. But when he says or texts, I want to see ashes, whatever it takes. People say things like that all the time, especially senior people in companies. It's not the same as I am knowingly joining a criminal conspiracy to cyberstalk a couple in Natick. People use loose talk like that all the time. Let me ask you something. If you have a dog that is trained to attack, and then you give them the command, take her down, aren't you as responsible for the damage that happens? It's obvious that it started from the top. Jalise McDonough and Rosemary Scapiccio are representing the Steiners in a civil case against eBay and its former executives. If you're in the C-suite, it's your job to know what your employees are doing. How did you sit back and say you didn't know? Especially when good things were happening and, and, and you know, the share prices were increasing. They were all, you know, patting themselves on the back. They, we did that. We did that. We had a, but then when something like this happens, they turn around and say, we had no idea. We had no idea this was happening. We've seen these text messages from Wenig and from Weimer. I was under the impression they turned over all their text messages. That didn't happen? No. Uh, Weimer deleted his text messages. There was a, no- a notice that went out to everyone to say, there's this criminal investigation, preserve the evidence. Weimer immediately deletes everything. Um, that's obstruction of justice. If I did that, I'd be sitting in a jail cell somewhere right now. The current U.S. attorney has said the investigation into eBay is ongoing. Steve Weimer was fired for cause by eBay and now runs the Boys and Girls Clubs of Silicon Valley. He has said his texts were mischaracterized and that he learned of the employee's conduct only after the fact. The former CEO, Devin Wenig, said in a statement to 60 Minutes that he was appalled at what happened and had he been aware of it at the time, he would have stopped it. Wenig resigned from eBay in September of 2019 with a $57 million exit package. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The United States has national parks devoted to canyons and deserts, glaciers and geysers, even underwater coral reefs. 63 national parks in all. But somehow, we skipped the American prairie. The grasslands that once stretched from the Mississippi River to the Rockies played a vital role in the lives of Native Americans, white settlers, and an endless variety of wildlife. They inspired explorers and artists, 
but apparently not park planners. Two decades ago, a nonprofit organization began trying to fix that, not with a new national park, but rather a huge, privately operated nature reserve, a place where, as we first reported last fall, buffalo can roam once again. Through a vast stretch of open, and for the moment empty, grassland, Allison Fox is taking us up a muddy two-track path in search of buffalo. This road is incredible. <laughs> Fox is the CEO of American Prairie, which has, as just one of many audacious goals, the restoration of bison to a landscape they once ruled. Oh, there. There. Oh, there they are. There, look at that. Wow, there oh, they look are. Look at the baby. Look at that. Oh. We found part of what American Prairie calls its conservation herd of about 800 buffalo. This group is mainly mothers with new calves, which are a distinctive shade of red. I'm trying to do a count of the babies, but now they've kind of moved the babies into the middle of the group. This land is like this as far as the eye can see. As far as the eye can see. That's not a bad description of the scale of American Prairie's ambition, to create the largest nature reserve in the contiguous United States. The nonprofit has more than 50 employees, from fundraisers to buffalo ranchers. Allison Fox has worked there for 15 years and has been in charge for the last four. Overall, the goal is to have how many acres in this reserve? Yeah, the, the overall goal is uh, about 5,000 square miles, 3.2 million acres of intact grasslands. Comparable to the size of the state of Connecticut and also comparable to Glacier and Yellowstone National Parks combined. That's big. It is big. The big chunk of land is mostly north of the Missouri River in north-central Montana, one of the most remote parts of the country. It's a patchwork of privately owned cattle ranches and land owned by the government, including a huge existing national wildlife refuge named after the famous cowboy painter Charles M. Russell. And that 1.1 million acres serves as the um, anchor of American Prairie's 3.2 million acre vision. And so you've got these big chunks of federal land and you're buying land in between to try to piece it all together. Exactly. So just about every time a private ranch comes up for sale inside its desired footprint, American Prairie tries to buy it to add another piece to its puzzle and preserve more grassland. How many ranches have you purchased? We have purchased 34 ranches. To buy all those ranches, American Prairie has raised nearly $200 million from more than 4,000 donors, including Wall Street financiers and technology moguls. It says it will take hundreds of millions more and decades more to complete the patchwork. So this is a long game. This is a long game, and it's a long game for land acquisition. It's a probably even longer game for the restoration of habitats and species. This area was America's Serengeti, truly America's Serengeti, with tens of thousands of bison, pronghorn, elk, deer, grizzly bears, wolves. Is that the goal, or is that a goal to restore that? Yes, to have the, the, the ecosystem function um, fully as it once did. 
Charles Russell's paintings portray a romanticized version of what the prairie ecosystem used to look like. Teeming herds of buffalo, Native Americans hunting and living alongside the buffalo, at least until they both were displaced by white settlers and hundreds of thousands of cattle. It's amazing to think of the people that lived here before us, people and other things. So over this direction, there's quite a cluster of teepee rings, so the Native Americans used to use this. Come on, Ross. Connie French operates this cattle ranch with her husband, Craig, and they are proud of their collaboration with conservation groups. In fact, they graze some of their cattle on a ranch that's been owned by the Nature Conservancy for more than 20 years. Okay, girl. But when American Prairie's early leaders came in talking about saving the land, it really rubbed her wrong. So saving it, yes, but not just tromping over people. Is that what it feels like? It does feel like that sometimes, yes. So um, They came in like, we know better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have said that for their vision to become a reality, mm-hmm. you and what you do, mm-hmm. that you're gone. Mm-hmm. I guess I can say, yes, that's how it feels to us, Hmm. to me. Along the few roads slicing through the grasslands here, the signs are everywhere. Save the cowboy. Stop American Prairie Reserve. They make it clear that a lot of Connie French's ranching neighbors share her concern. What some ranchers have told us is that when you say you want to save the land, what they hear is that you want to save the land from them. Yeah, no, we are um, well aware that that word save hit a nerve, and that was not at all our intention. Many of our ranching neighbors are committed to conservation, so if I could pull back that word save, I absolutely would. American Prairie is now working hard to mend fences with skeptical neighbors. It has a program called Wild Sky, run by a wildlife biologist on its staff, Daniel Kinka. Wild Sky ranchers are the best at what they do in terms of sustainable ranching. Wild Sky will pay a rancher up to $15,000 a year for things like modifying fences to make them easier for wildlife to get over or through while still keeping cattle contained. It also pays ranchers to install cameras on their property. The rancher gets paid for every animal that crosses the path of this camera? That's correct. You get a coyote, that's 25 bucks. A black bear comes behind it, that's 300 bucks. Four or five elk come behind it, that's 50 bucks. The biggest payouts are for wolves and grizzly bears, $500 per picture per camera per day. Wolves and grizzly bears aren't on this part of the prairie at the moment. The idea of Wild Sky is that as they and other wildlife do return, payments will help cattle ranchers tolerate them. Make sure you follow up the calves. Lance Johnson, a fourth-generation Montanan who runs a cattle ranch with his wife and two daughters, is one of 15 Wild Sky ranchers. The cameras on his property have captured enough pictures this year to earn him $6,000, the annual maximum American Prairie will pay for photos of wildlife. These ranches are so hard to make profitable that if you can figure out any way to supplement your income, then that's probably necessary right now. Johnson also leases grass and grazes cattle on a ranch owned by American Prairie. So while some of his neighbors see it as a threat, he says that working with it helps ensure his family's future. 
you see a place for you and your daughters and your cattle on this land for the foreseeable future. We hope so. We hope for the rest of our lives that we're there. I want to do everything I can to give our girls that opportunity to have ranching in the future. American Prairie says it intends to work alongside cattle ranchers for decades to come, and it does have some natural allies in the neighborhood. The rancher and the wild space, can those two coexist? Yeah, they can and they are. Happening right now. Mark Azure was born and raised on the Fort Belknap Reservation, which is adjacent to where American Prairie is assembling its reserve. He's a former president of the reservation's tribal council, made up of members of two tribes, the Nakota and the Ani. Is there any recollection of what this land was like before the white settlers came? Like the wildlife? Yes, uh, it, it was plentiful. Millions and millions of buffalo and, and antelope and deer and prairie dogs, black-footed ferrets, elk. The tribes at Fort Belknap began building their bison herd nearly a half century ago, and it's now more than a thousand animals. Mark Azure took us out to see part of the herd, which roams across a huge pasture on the reservation. So they're just scattered out doing what buffalo do, and that's eat the grass and right now enjoy the weather. The tribes benefit economically from selling some buffalo meat. But you can see in the symbols used during native ceremonies that their value is much greater than money. We know the history of the tribes and the buffalo, and they were one in the same. To come out here and get on the prairie and see a herd of buffalo, you can kind of leave that world for a little bit and reconnect with that lifestyle that my ancestors lived years ago. Might be just a little bit, but it's there. Some ranchers fear that the tribes and American Prairie will let their buffalo roam free as they once did. You use the term free, and I always argued that point because there's a fence somewhere. Hmm. There has to be a fence somewhere. But as much room as we can give them to roam, then within that context, they'll be free. But not like it was 200 years ago. And we understand that. Still be a place where you can come and see the buffalo roam. Absolutely. American Prairie encourages people to visit the land it owns. It operates campgrounds and has built huts and yurts that anyone can reserve. It allows hunting on many properties, which helps to build support among Montanans. Across the West, you see more and more no trespassing signs. We've talked a lot about uh, wildlife and wildlife habitat, but certainly providing access for people to um, appreciate, learn from, recreate on this land is a really important part of what we're doing as well. The debate over American Prairie is often framed as an either-or. Either there are cattle or buffalo. If preservationists win, ranchers lose. What we found across these wide expanses of grass were much more subtle shades of green. You know, when a new group comes in, new folks, new neighbors, it takes some time to learn if it's legit. What I think I hear you saying is they have to earn your trust. Mm -hmm. And so far they have not. 
No. That trust isn't given lightly. With the size of the state of Montana and the, the herds of cattle, hundreds of thousands of animals in this state, um, I don't think buffalo will ever compete. And that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying, with American Prairie, take a section of land in the state and uh, return it back as best we can to what it was 200 years ago. It's a huge section of land. Still not bigger than Montana. I think there's room here for both. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. When Russia invaded Ukraine last year, James Nakwe packed up his cameras and Kevlar vest and rushed to the front lines. Nakwe is one of the greatest war photographers of all time. Over the last four decades, he's covered nearly every armed conflict in the world. He was shot in the leg in Thailand, wounded by a bomb in El Salvador, a mortar in Beirut, and a grenade in Iraq that was tossed into a Humvee he was riding in. James Nakwe is 75 now, and as we first reported in May, still risking his life to capture images that may be difficult to look at, but important to never forget. In the darkest times and in the most dangerous places, James Nakwe captures beauty and brutality, moments of hate, and heroism, senseless destruction, and quiet acts of compassion. His photographs reveal the deepest and often disturbing depths of who we are and what we do to each other. You've said that photographs can speak, and I'm wondering if you feel like you're, you're helping give voice to some of the people you photograph. Well, many of the people I photographed are marginalized by the powers that be that they're silenced, they're made invisible. So when someone comes from another part of the world and assumes risk to tell their story, I think people see us as a kind of messenger. Nakwe has devoted his life to telling other people's stories, bearing witness to their suffering and sacrifices. But documenting what he calls the insanity of war has been the core of his career. He spent decades covering conflicts in Afghanistan and the Middle East, the war in Bosnia, and the genocide in Rwanda, when as many as a million people died. Some photographers have talked about their camera as a weapon. Do you think of your camera in that way? I think it's a way of looking at it, because in a way you're 
you might be fighting for peace or fighting against an injustice, and the way you do it is by informing people about it with the faith that people will want something done about it. In Ukraine, at the start of the war, Nakwe worked in and around Kiev and Kharkiv for the New Yorker magazine. These are images he took in Bucha shortly after Russian troops pulled out, leaving behind the bodies of civilians they'd executed. Bucha was horrendous. It was really like kind of butchery. In terms of brutality of all the militaries you have seen, does the Russian military stand apart in Ukraine for their behavior? Somehow the Russians have stood apart, uh, not only in Ukraine, but in Chechnya. Nakwe was in Chechnya's capital, Grozny, for weeks in 1995 and 96, as Russian forces relentlessly bombarded the city. The part that was inhabited by the Chechens was pounded into rubble from artillery and rocket fire and airstrikes for weeks and weeks on end with the civilian population trapped inside. They've taken that to Ukraine, but it's throughout the country. In Kharkiv, in eastern Ukraine last year, we watched Nakwe as he worked photographing a man living in a crawl space under a building to avoid shelling. Months later, back in his New Hampshire studio, Nakwe showed us some of the images he'd taken. What made this an image that spoke to you? The expression on his face. If you really look carefully at his eyes, you can see there's terror in his eyes. He'd just been living in a state of terror for, for quite a while. This photograph was taken in a Kiev suburb of civilians evacuating across a makeshift bridge. These are split seconds that are occurring. You can be running and taking a picture. Quite often I'm running, and I have to try and make a composition, get it in focus, and catch the moment. People talk about your use of hands in images. Is that something you're conscious of? I'm extremely conscious of hands and eyes. I think those are the two most expressive parts of people. This is a really good example here. That's the center of the picture, the old man's hand reaching for support to be held up by the volunteer. How many scenes like this have you seen in your life? Too many. Decades of Nakwe's photographs are on display in a traveling exhibition called Memoria. When it stopped in New York, he showed us some of the 67 stunning images in it. These are the orphanages in Romania. In 1990, Nakwe helped reveal the shocking squalor and neglect in Romania's state-run orphanages. The cribs were just packed together. The children were in the cribs and they were taken out to play. There was almost like in prison in a way. His photographs, published in the New York Times magazine, helped lead to an international effort to rescue these children. How does a child who's about three years old maybe have a look like that in his eyes? Other walls in the exhibition were lined with casualties of war, a family mourning in Bosnia, a father protecting his wounded daughter from gunfire in El Salvador. Those are machete strikes. And this man, a survivor of a machete attack in Rwanda. He couldn't talk. I approached him very slowly, and I just made eye contact with him, and I showed him my camera, and he allowed me to take the picture. He even turned his face more toward the light without me asking. That's important to you, that somebody gives their permission in a situation like this? I don't want to feel like I'm taking from people. I want them to feel like they're part of what I'm doing. And I think he understood what his scars would say to the rest of the world. Do you get depressed by it? 
Do you cry? Do you get angry? I'm angry a lot of the time. I mean, when I see innocent people being pushed around and bullied, you know, I fight depression. It, the things are depressing, but I think it's a sense of purpose that you know, sort of drives me through that. You've said that you had to learn how to channel your anger as a journalist. I realize anger can just throw you off the rails. So I channel it into the pictures, and I think my pictures have anger in them, but they also have compassion. It was this image and others taken by the legendary Life magazine photographer Larry Burroughs in Vietnam that opened Nakwe's eyes to the power of pictures when he was a student at Dartmouth College in the late 1960s. Burroughs' photographs had a point of view, revealing the reality of war for service members and civilians alike. How did you start? I just started cold. I read books. I would create assignments for myself, and I would go out as if I was working for an editor and practice. Wait, so you would just make up your own assignments? Yes. I said, okay, I'm going to go out on a fishing trawler, you know, making believe, you know, I was shooting for National Geographic or something. He landed a job taking pictures for the Albuquerque Journal in 1976. That's his photo on the front page. But it wasn't until 1981, after 10 years of training, that Nakwe felt ready to photograph armed conflict. He bought a ticket to Belfast, Northern Ireland, where riots and street battles were escalating. Did you know people there? I didn't know anyone. I was green. I just threw myself into it. His photographs from there were published by Newsweek magazine. I felt that I was in the midst of history as it was happening, and I was documenting it, and that, that was really an exciting feeling. You were on the breaking wave of history. I mean, isn't that what photographers do? Because nothing's been written. A situation is happening. We actually don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. Anything can happen. His unflinching coverage of the civil wars in Central America in the 1980s cemented Nakwe's reputation and earned him a contract with Time magazine, where his work appeared for the next 34 years. In South Africa in the early 1990s, Nakwe covered the violent end of apartheid and the blood-soaked birth of a new democracy. He was there when another photojournalist, Ken Osterbrook, was shot to death and two other colleagues wounded. We were down on the ground trying to not be targets of incoming fire, and you can see my hair part from the bullet going through my hair. You actually felt the bullet going through your hair? You could actually see it on the film. Here it is again in slow motion. As Nakwe in the white shirt moved to reach his injured colleague, a bullet, like a gust of wind, grazed his hair. You've come close many times to being killed. Is it worth it for these images? It's not for any one image. It's, it's for the job itself. I decided a long time ago that if I was going to do this, I would have to put myself at risk and anything could happen. You clearly made a commitment that this was worth sacrificing for, worth sacrificing having a family for. I realized that if I were to pursue what I'm doing, and I, I was very driven to do that, I wouldn't be a good father, I wouldn't be a good husband, and all that would fall apart. I just didn't want that to happen. So I had to forego it. Nakwe lives in Hanover, New Hampshire, where he went to college, though he's rarely there for long. His life's work, nearly a million images, has been acquired by Dartmouth, including his wrenching coverage of the opioid epidemic in the U.S., 
and contact sheets from the morning of September 11th. Nakwe was just blocks away when the towers were hit. So that's the first image? Yes, that's roll one. That's the first picture right there. The proof sheets are a silent reminder of the horror that day, but also reveal how Nakwe works. He isn't just a photographer documenting destruction. He's a man in search of meaning. About a block and a half from the South Tower was a small Roman Catholic church with a cross on the top. And I thought that was an interesting way of framing it. It somehow indicated the cultural difference between who was being attacked and who was doing the attacking. And as I was photographing it, the tower fell. That's what's happening right here. It starts collapsing as I'm photographing it. And all of this debris, these giant girders that must have weighed tons, were flying through the air. You were about to get killed. So I found my way into the lee of a building and it all flew over me. Decades of close calls have taken their toll on James Nockway. His hearing is damaged and he has grenade shrapnel in his knees, stomach, and face. But he has no plans on retiring and still finds reasons to hope in his camera's viewfinder. The look of just utter joy. and As in this image of Nelson Mandela on the eve of his election as South Africa's first black president in 1994. His fist in the air, which is a symbol of both triumph and defiance. And this one, taken two years earlier, of South African children playing on a trampoline. What made you take this picture? And there's something about the innocence of children that's transcendent. And to bounce on a trampoline, I think that you get to the height of your jump, and then for a moment, you defy gravity. And I think that's the feeling that, that I wanted to get in this picture that they're transcending the weight that has been on their society. Perhaps in the end, that is what James Nockway shows us in his work, that we are all capable of transcending our circumstances and ourselves. We can commit terrible acts of brutality and barbarism, but also stunning acts of kindness and caring. Are you optimistic about the human species? I mean, you see the worst in, in people. I don't know if optimism is exactly the right word, but in these horrible situations, we see everyday citizens doing remarkable things for each other. Mothers and fathers are my heroes. What they do for their children, how they protect them, being in places where people have next to nothing, and yet anything they have, they offer to a stranger. Those are the things that we all have and that are displayed in in the worst situations that makes me believe in humanity. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. 
When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. I'm Anderson Cooper. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondry Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go... Tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search I on College Basketball Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.